This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the purpose of the U.S. Government Accountability Office's Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics team? How is GAO innovating the way it conducts its oversight mission? And what emerging technologies offer the most promise and require the most oversight? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Dr. Timothy Persons, Chief Scientist and Managing Director of the Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics team at GAO. Well, Tim, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks very much, Michael. It's great to be back with you. So, Tim, you know, I was hoping just to set some context, I, was, I wanted you to kind of remind us of the mission of the U.S. Government Accountability Office, GAO. And, but more particularly, I also want to understand what prompted GAO to establish its science, technology, assessment, and analytics team, which you are one of the managing directors of. Yeah, thanks, Michael. So the uh, GAO, we are actually on our uh, centennial this year. We f- were founded in 1921, and we were initially the budgetary uh, accountants, you know, checking on the money, checking on the vouchers, especially in the era through FDR and the New Deal. And that was sort of the uh, massive original, uh, you know, major stimulus for the U.S., as it were. Uh, back then. So that was our financial accounting was really in our, 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 our bloodstream and has remained so. But um, we really have become uh, a performance auditing with financial accounting. And then we even more so we've been doing more. Um, if that, all of that is the oversight work, then we also do insight and foresight for the Congress. So let me explain what I mean by that. The GAO is one of the relatively few. We are the largest also of the legislative branch agencies. And our our job is to be that watchdog, that oversight. And so that's where we have extraordinary access into all things pertaining to uh, the federal government and so on. And uh, we work for uh, all of the standing committees and usually anywhere from uh, 80, maybe up to 90% of the the subcommittees uh, of the Congress, House and Senate. Uh, And and so we, we have a very important mission. Our brand is that we're uh, trusted, non-partisan, fact-based, non-ideological um, uh, reporting and oversight uh, arm of the, of the U.S. Congress. So that's that's our mission in a nutshell. Though what's exciting now is we're doing more things in terms of uh, how do we make good government better in terms of insight with best practices and things, as well as what we do with uh, in my team in particular with uh, science technology when you see how much uh, science and tech is changing the world and, and around us today. So that really is pivoting to part two of your question, Michael, is what prompted us was that really GAO was starting to do science back in the 1960s and moving forward. And then uh, a, a lot of the uh, Department of Energy work, a lot of the uh, the defense work becoming or our capabilities in the US becoming more uh, technical in nature, the rise of information technology systems. Uh, science arrived at GAO really in the 70s alongside of uh, when we started to do performance auditing, i.e. what am I getting for the money, not just where is the money going, but what am I getting for that or what are the problems with this program or what have you really in the 70s. So that's the first factor. The second was in the mid-90s, there was the demise of a now defunct office, which was also in the legislative branch called the OTA, which stands for the Office of Technology Assessment which was to advise Congress on ST issues. And so really there's been 
uh, since that time, uh, uh, in, in many of uh, people's minds, there's been a significant drought in science technology capacity in the Congress. So that was uh, the second reason. And then the third reason really is, as I was saying before, is that really we live in a day where, uh, you know, I picked up the paper today and of course, we're still in the midst of a, a public health emergency and a global pandemic. We still have lots of concern about our digital society and cybersecurity. I'm seeing that we've had a massive prices have spiked economically because of supply chain issues and supply chain management security is very technical in nature. Uh, we have asymmetric threats based upon uh, capabilities, the bad guys having things out there that we have to be concerned about that are science and tech in nature, uh, and then also a changing climate. So that's just on today's headlines, right? Why we need it is because it is such a pressing and felt need. And so uh, that's where the Comptroller General established uh, STAA or a science tech assessment analytics team at GAO uh, in 2019. Yeah, I want to transition uh, to your specific roles, I should say. Uh, and could you tell us a little bit more about your dual responsibilities as both the chief scientist of GAO and as one of the managing directors of STAA? Yeah, thanks, Mark. The, the chief's role, there's several chiefs at GAO. I've, I'm one of them. We have, for example, a chief accountant uh, who focuses on a lot on uh, accountant standards, provides a lot of senior leadership, those sort of things. Uh, we also have a chief actuary and we have other chiefs at GAO, uh, including now a chief data scientist uh, who I was pleased to be able to hire into SAA and working for us. But the basic thing with chiefs at GAO is that we have a pan-institutional remit, which means just as GAO works across all these issues of vast and sundry issues, programs, projects, et cetera, in the federal government, so too the chiefs are there to help out any or everywhere. All of GAO's 14 mission teams have to deal with, with science, technology, in my case, science, uh, and in the actuary's case, when it's actuarial issues and, and so on. So that's the, the first part of the first hat that I wear. So the second part then of the hat is then managing because we're proud to have the Duke team. It's very exciting. It's doing an incredible amount of work, but it does require a management element of that. And so myself with a co-managing director, he leads the audit side of things. Uh, he's, his name's John Newman. He's done a fantastic job on uh, leading and, and helping do things like federal research development oversight, that kind of thing. And then I've been leading all the technology assessment, establishing the innovation lab, and then publishing best practices guides in the engineering sciences. So we have a lot of work that we do. And so my job there is to help manage uh, all of those parts of, of the mission team. You know, Tim, they're complementary efforts that you're doing and you're leading, but I was wondering if you can put them together or maybe emphasize one or the other, what are some of the top challenges you're facing and how have you sought to address those? And it could be management challenges, operational challenges, topic challenges. Yeah, thanks. It's good. That's that's the, a key thing I think about all the time. Um, there is something out there. It's a conceptual idea. Uh, uh, it's called the DIKW pyramid. Okay, now, and I'll explain what it means briefly. Uh, D is at the base of a pyramid. You imagine the D is the base. It stands that layer is for data, right? You have a lot of data. You need to then uh, add value or move it up to the next layer, which is a narrower thing. So that's thus it forms kind of the pyramid is the uh, information or the I. So the D and the I, you're moving data into information. And then even more, you want to move from information. We just, just don't want to have, be a facts-based entity ourselves, especially in SDAA, 
but we need to move that information into knowledge. And so as you, as you go up from D to the I and I to the W, you're moving up from uh, how, how we overall GAO's mission, how we do things to, to convert questions to answers. And then ultimately, if we're truly successful, then the key challenge is getting to the W. That's the top, the pinnacle of the pyramid, which is wisdom, right? So how do we provide not only knowledge, but wisdom to our members so they can make informed decisions, right? Especially in the science and technology area. So the top challenge is, okay, how to move the D all the way to the W. And we need to do that where really it's in a, in a timely manner that is legislatively relevant because we serve the U.S. Congress. So that's one issue. So it's think of it as pounds of quality over unit time, right? How much quality could I get in a relatively short period of time, but without being sloppy, no cutting corners. And as my boss, the Comptroller General said, and I totally agree, is we're not going to sacrifice quality. We're going to make sure that it's, it's always very good. But how do we get there faster, quicker, that kind of thing. The next thing is that in, the, in moving to, from the D to the W is absorption. So it's how do you not only have the members uh, absorb the information, you want that to be retained. And then you wanna have really building, engaging, this is the people part of it, building, engaging, and maintaining a truly world-class operation. When really our competitors, especially in our innovation lab, we're doing a lot of evidence-based policy making and data analytics. We had a chance to speak uh, back in 2017 and your role has changed a little bit, especially with the new team that was created. I was wondering, what do you like most about your job at GAO? One of the key things is with SDAA and then uh, the Innovation Lab itself and hiring our chief data scientist, Taka Riga, who's fantastic and he's doing a lot of great things. But uh, the main thing that I really enjoy is now having established a creative and entrepreneurial space for the new team to bring, be able to bring and realize agile government, right? I, I love um, IBM's Center for Agile Government and what Dan Chenock and, and the leadership is doing uh, there in, in association with Napa. Uh, so just how do we bring agile to government and then also bring evidence-based policymaking to government? So much government is about decision-making while underpinning decisions are data and things and to convert uh, questions to answers using data, you have to have state-of-the-art tools and do the analytics on that and really help uh, bring a lot uh, more insight, again, getting that at W in a shorter period of time. Yeah, I mean, you often hear people talk about, you know, being agile, whether it's the agile methods, becoming management methods and not just software methods, you know, but the whole thing you're, you're mentioning, uh, Tim, it's interesting given the entrepreneurial nature of what you're, what you're doing and what you're leading. How is your leadership approach or principles that you follow? Have they evolved over the years? What are they now? What I've learned is, number one, the, the most sustainable, successful, transformative model is servant leadership, right? It's, it's not about me, right? It's not about the person. After servant leadership, the second thing is the ability to think strategically while acting tactically in a complex and adaptive systems framework. Right, well, there is no static world that we're out there. The the things that are coming at us are so profound. They're so coming so quickly. We don't know what to do, and the one thing that that can to, can kill you. And this this goes back to you know classic uh, officer training in the military is is just standing there without making decision is worse than the the idea that you make a decision but it might be the wrong one, and therefore you have to have that sort of agile. Framework, So that's important, having that strategic, tactical ability in complex systems and, and acting uh, in an agile manner. And then the third is people. For true leadership, you want to hire amazing people, delegate to them, 
the ideal goal is to work myself out of a job. If you set things up and the organization is so well run, that's when I think you truly have a, a key success. I really was profoundly struck by a book I read about George Marshall. It was called Defender of the Republic. And it really was talking, he, he arguably is, is, has been our greatest secretary of state in U.S. history and very profound, but was the five-star general, you know, FDR needed to keep him home. He really wanted to do the D-Day invasion, but he, he, he enabled Ike to do it. And Eisenhower ended up in the White House from that. You know, it's just an incredible leader. If you read that, uh, that's, I think, the picture. I've been profoundly impressed by that kind of model. And uh, so that's, that's the one I'm pursuing. What are the key strategic priorities for GAO's science, technology assessment, and analytics team? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Tim Persons, Chief Scientist and Managing Director of the Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics Team at the Government Accountability Office, GAO. You know, Tim, I was wondering about your strategic priorities for in either of your roles, but let's talk about the science, technology, assessment, and analytics team. Could you let us know what some of those core priorities, strategic priorities are for the year? And do they complement, or is there anything else you're doing as chief scientist? Yes. Uh, so I think the core priorities are really for the institution is that we're, we've been leading, we SDLA within GAO, but for the benefit of all the committees and things like that, we're really in an era, Michael, of what I call AI for blank, right? AI is one of those general purpose technologies that, again, like a glacier is reshaping the landscape of how we think about work, uh, being task specific or task oriented, right? Being augmentation of humans versus a replace, you know, a replacement, except replacement of really low value work that, frankly, we can do higher and better things with anyway. So to me, AI, I'm a cautious optimist about it because you can, there's so much promise to it, though, when properly implemented. Get the picture is that though fundamentally technology really do need to have sort of an ERM around AI for whatever. And that now includes um, the operationalization of a recent um, uh, framework that we put out on AI accountability. This is to help overseers just ask the right questions. What are the key risks I need to focus on? It's, it's not a prescriptive kind of thing. It fits it's sort of in the mold of our best practices guides. We're just saying, here are the good things to do. The second is uh, we really in the, I mentioned the innovation lab and the fact that we have a chief data scientist is really in earnest bringing about evidence-based policymaking to the Congress, but through GAO's trusted nonpartisan fact-based non-ideological way of doing business. So we are bringing about new uh, advanced analytics capabilities, including as we push into machine learning systems or what have you, we really do need, we have a crying need for a long time, then bipartisan, bicameral interest. And how do we have more evidence uh, introduced in terms of our policymaking? So uh, that's a big piece that we're doing in the lab. That's the second big thing. And then the third area as chief scientist, 
Uh, one is that we just released a study on quantum technology. So this is really on quantum information science, quantum computing, and that includes both uh, challenges to commercial crypto systems and things like that, or Homeland Security ones or what have you, but also the opportunities of that, what could be done with quantum systems and, and how might we uh, defend against them uh, with, in, in, the, in the light of Shor's algorithm, the one that can break public key crypto systems at scale, right? That's the key thing. And then the last thing I'll just mention is really in decarbonization technologies, of course, um, uh, changing climate is a big concern. How do we manage carbon? Might we be able to convert CO2 from a waste stream into an asset in some way, right? How do we think about the ocean um, as a, a carbon sink, which is where it's going anyway, but can we be more intentional about how carbon ends up in the ocean without acidifying or, or affecting fisheries and all of the, the, uh, the economic benefit and the joy that we all get from? Uh, the ocean. So those are just three areas for, from a T-Science perspective, and there's so many more. I want to explore a little bit the technology assessment work that you do for GAO. How do you do that? How does GAO conduct these assessments? What are some of the key stages of the technology assessment design? And perhaps in, in telling us about this, you can you can kind of highlight the design handbook you released in, I believe, early 2021. Um, perhaps highlight some of the things there. We are proud of the design handbook. We worked on that with an international group of peers and then experts uh, domestically and folks who had been associated with OTA. One of the key reasons we had to do it is because when uh, I was given the tech assessment task by the Comptroller General, I didn't have any handbook. (laughs) So it was good to be able to do that and just uh, imagine like, what what is that? And really stand on the shoulders of giants that uh, we had some great work out of OTA in the past. How do we inculcate that, write it down, and that's what resulted in the handbook. But it really is, how do we do that thorough and balanced analysis of the primary or even secondary uh, interactions of tech innovation on society, environment, the economy, and the ethical uh, issues, and so on. So the first thing really is determining what the scope is, so scoping of a problem, like what do we do in a study about such a topic to be able to um, uh, focus on what questions uh, can we answer, and that's that really goes into uh, developing the initial design is really the the second phase of things, and that's that's really about you know what what's the scope first of all, what questions can we answer? Then let's design, and really primarily, as I've mentioned, with evidence based policy making, how do we do that with data? How do we and how do we convert those questions to answers in that quality over unit time dimension that I'm trying to to achieve for the U.S. Congress? And then the third step then is just implementing that design, whatever the topic may be. And this is a generalizable thing. This could be based upon the questions and the policy goals of of um, the committees or the members that ask us to do this is really to say, how are we implementing design in order to, again, convert that Q to the A? And so that, that's what the, the handbook just unpacks those particular steps in more detail and gives menu options, as it were, for things to consider as you go along. And again, this was written by uh, practitioners at GAO and then with a lot of assistance from help um, around the world. Uh, the second challenge is then, again, determining what is the actual a policy objective, and can we actually measure those effects? Uh, measurement is important because you can't manage what you can't measure. And so we could say we think we did something good, but we're trying to really to think intentionally about measuring those things. And then the third challenge really is, as I mentioned before, trying to get Congress to absorb s when it's so much is thrown at it. There's so much coming at them. 
communicating that very effectively and, and doing it in an engaging way is a key thing uh, for, for our tech assessment. So those are the challenges that we face today. So Tim, drug companies, as I understand it, spend 10 to 15 years bringing a drug to market, often at a high cost. Uh, machine learning could reduce the time and cost for finding new insights in large biomedical or health-related data sets. GAO identified several challenges that apparently hindered the adoption and impact of machine learning in drug development. Would you tell us more about those challenges and perhaps offer policy options that could address such challenges? Yes, thanks. Um, we, we enjoy doing a study. We partnered with the National Academy of Medicine on this topic and issued a report, so thanks for asking about it. Uh, it, it has been, that's the, the time clock to coming up with a functional, you know, uh, some kind of pharmaceutical uh, does take a decade to a decade and a half, typically. Now, I will say parenthetically, you note that in 2020 and into early 21, we had a record time of a vaccine, which is just another type of pharmaceutical, but brought to market in nine months. So we're, we really had that exponential drop. And I think part of that story is, of course, the, the focused mind based upon a crisis and, and thousands and thousands of Americans dying. And, and so that, that definitely is a factor. But I think agile government, what, what can be done and, and just really rethinking and, and moving is, is what's there. But what's exciting about machine learning in the context of just any pharmaceutical is really so much of the pharmaceutical business is about a trial and error. I, okay, I can, as a chemist, I can create some what I think might be something to help treat Alzheimer's, let's say, which would be a, that's a multi-billion, billion dollar problem. Okay, would you talk about uh, liabilities looking in the out years as we age up and so on. So having a drug like that would be profound, but you have to do trial and error. So what if you could do trial and error faster and the machine, which has that memory and could, could aggregate data from other players, could be able to say, this is the list of things that look like they're more promising. Uh, and this is the th these are the things that, based upon our data and evidence, uh, would be a waste of time. And so what it does is it really sweetens the pool, as it were, of potential uh, pharmaceutical candidates for a drug uh, company so that it really should compress that time the 10 to 15 year time frame, and ideally make it much shorter than what we've been used to. And that's just significant because it reduces the trial and error. And really the machine learning can help out significantly with trying to do, especially in, you know, think about computational uh, systems where you're trying out a function. But of course, we have to think differently about um, how we do it. There, of course, there's basic research just into AI for drug development. That's a, that's a dedicated thing. Uh, there's a lot of money for AI. There's a lot of money for drug development, but we're talking about money for research to do machine learning in drug development. So, you know, Tim, I, I think I'd like to segue into giving your perspective. And can you give us an overview of the use and application of AI and intelligent automation at federal agencies? What's the reality versus like the fiction, if you will? And what does the future look like? Yes, yeah, sure. Thanks. I, there is, uh, I think, admittedly, still a lot of what I would call PowerPoint engineering out there that's it's aspirational. It's not wrong. I think that we have to do that. So uh, talking about AI is different than doing AI, of course. And, uh, and so a, a lot of the learning is, of course, going to be by the doing and by being agile and iterating through and so on. What I'm seeing is that overall, I think the bottom line I'm seeing across the federal government is that we're in a very nascent state just about everywhere. 
you know, we've taken the first baby steps along a, a, you know, a thousand mile journey, but nonetheless, we're taking the steps. And I think in general, uh, agencies know their mission, they know, they know their problems, but how to marry up the new computational and algorithms and those sort of that design thinking is, I think, the, the new work. And that's, that's uh, I think, the heavier lift, in my opinion. DARPA had, a, I thought, a nice uh, framework for how to explain AI in relative maturity, because you have wave one AI are the rules-based systems, which are, we experience these like I do my taxes on tax software, right? That's a, that's a rules-based, you know the rules up front, the machine just interviews me, fills in the data for me, and then helps me out in various ways. But there's not a lot of, quote, thinking in the machine. It's not statistical, which is really wave two. Uh, wave two is statistical approach to machine learning. And that's the harder part. That's where I don't see a lot of maturity. Um, you did ask about intelligent automation, Michael, and I do see a lot. So the, the, the growth, I think, has been a lot in what's called RPA, the robotic process automation. And that is a significant win because you're just taking a lot of stuff that it's like, why are we making a human do this work, right? When a machine could do it, and let that human focus on higher complexity things. Again, how do we push up toward the knowledge and wisdom portion of the pyramid? And I, I think that's going on. I think we're making lives a lot easier. I think there's so much of the government, Michael, that is uh, services oriented. So it's really about digital services and RPA is the first step. And I'm seeing a lot of really exciting things on that. But wave two is still coming. But I will say this, I've seen some innovation in, in places like the SEC marketing or, or, or monitoring the market at times. Uh, we've had our Department of Transportation. We have an element of it called the National Highway Transportation and Safety Administration or NHTSA. That is the one that does the safety uh, testing, the regulations and things for vehicles. And so obviously when we have these autonomous vehicles, there's a lot, a lot of testing that has to be done. And so we really are in the millions of miles of vehicles tested uh, as of uh, at least uh, a year, 18 months ago, uh, was the last time I, I heard from an assistant secretary of transportation. But I think we still have billions, you know, we're, we have a thousand times that to, to get to where we really are comfortable with putting our kids in the autonomous vehicle or, you know, having our family driven somewhere or whatever it is on that. So I'm seeing some things go on in the government in places that might surprise you, but do, do make sense. And they are getting a sense of that statistical machine learning wave two thing. Lastly, I'll just say DOD is doing a lot. They have a joint AI center. Uh, they're still, that center still building again, more of that means of production, but uh, the Jake has already been thinking about for the services. How do we, utilize this to, you know, cycle down the, you know, the decision chain in terms of how they have to wage warfare or how they detect threats and deter and do those sort of things. So it's an exciting future, but it does require a significant amount of change, uh, change management and a different way of thinking entirely about operations. So lots, lots of work to go. Yeah. And there's a lot of work, you know, as a follow-up, Tim, as you point out, AI technologies continue to advance at an incredible speed and, uh, you know, federal oversight considerations need to evolve as well. And I was interested, uh, you know, recently uh, GAO uh, released its AI accountability framework. Oh, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that. Can you tell us more about the framework, the key accountability practices that help federal agencies and others use AI responsibly? Yes, uh, thanks, because the framework really identified four key pillars of good 
uh, AI accountability. One is accountability about the data. We all know you need to secure the data. You need to have privacy considerations around the data. What data are, am I using? Uh, but there's a lot of uh, what's also called data engineering, how to make sure that there's good quality data. That oftentimes is the biggest challenge is getting quality data in a machine readable format that uh, algorithms can then compute upon, right? So uh, that's one particular pillar. That's a heavy lift, uh, especially with there are agencies that have a lot of data, but it's not necessarily in the right format for uh, what one needs for, for the new era. A lot of the data, for example, has been locked away in what I call digital lockboxes instead of putting in sort of these larger things called data lakes where you're using cloud IT based things, which, you know, is is not brand spanking new, but to the government, it's relatively new, right? We all know the woes about the federal government IT needing to modernize. We GAO just made serious recommendations about having to do that. So data is a big deal. The second issue is the governance, who gets to see what, when, how, and why, right? That kind of thing. And that's easy to ask, but you have to have a sense of that. I, I think that there's a lot of optimism I, I could take on having good governance because, because with it, the rise of cloud technologies and, and more advanced software and data management tools is that governance can become a bigger, a grander thing than we've ever had before, if we even had a meaningful version of that. But nonetheless, you have to set up and say who you know, the oversight of that, that data and the algorithm and so on is important. And the third area, the third pillar in the AI framework is, is in performance. And so that's really where most data scientists live. They want to tweak their algorithm for, you know, squeeze a little bit more and get a little bit more juice out of it. And in other words, the performance does matter. And then the last area is monitoring. This is just where we do need to track this. I, I think of this as a you know, there's oftentimes these quality assurance inspectors on a manufacturing line that just walk around, right? You think of some, you know, some stream of things coming down the conveyor belt and, and they're just sampling and pulling stuff out. You do need to monitor and just say, okay, how's this algorithm performing? Is it, are we seeing a, a drift is what it's called in these machine states, the machine algorithms that update and change. Are they changing in a way that's positive and more uh, beneficial or are they starting to kind of run off the rails and we need to do course correction now before uh, we get into big trouble. So those are the the key pillars of that. And I think that's the, those, that's what the um, thing was about. I think in terms of the key questions, Michael, uh, I, by far the overwhelmingly dominant issue in AI adoption is really culture and change management. It's, it's a shocking reality. It's not really about the technology as hard as that is. It really is about culture and change management, thinking differently about that. And so uh, when I'm asked what are questions and policymakers should consider on this, I think we've already made some steps with the, with the creation of federal chief data officers, but you could apply this anywhere. It doesn't have to be a federal agency, but we really do need to, in an in a entity or an in institution, to create and empower CDOs, the chief data officer in some way, which then uh, you need to have that person be able to lead the development of data curation and governance uh, on that. Again, this is building off our, our framework. And then the third thing that I personally recommend just because uh, it's what we're doing at GAO, but I also do believe strongly that it's important uh, anywhere is you need to have some space for innovation to occur. You cannot have innovation without taking risk. And so what you need to do is put it in what we call the sandbox, where you can take risks, uh, but take it offline. It's not in the way of the mission. The mission would never suffer because you're just using it in a test lab. 
right? What the lab needs to be able to do is think from a design principle based upon clearly defined problems, what it could do with data analytics and, and, and to really develop that digital services framework that I think the whole federal government is being pulled into. Uh, moving forward. That's wonderful. And Tim, I want to transition to a couple of more reports that you folks worked on around the pandemic and the pandemic response. And the first one is around the importance of quality data and analysis. I was hoping you could tell us more about the technology assessment uh, GAO conducted on the importance of data quality and considerations for analysis of pandemic data. What, if anything, has changed since the start of the pandemic? And are there any recommendations made in GAO's work in this area that perhaps you could highlight for us? Yes, sure, Michael. So I think um, the first thing is that uh, this is really at the end of COVID-19 is the topic. I realize that, but this is still falls under evidence-based policymaking. And really, it goes down to when you talk about data analytics, it really goes to the question of how good of um, Uh, of an analysis, do we want to be able to, in a timely manner, present to our decision makers at any time, much less a time of crisis, right? So I think uh, lessons learned from this is that really data quality and the algorithms in this to be able to rapidly give insight into uh, these decisions that are of huge import, right? Think about, do we close the borders? Do we shut the airports down? Do we do this and that? Uh, we absolutely want the best and most timely data there. And I think we all could agree that in 2020, there's uh, a lot more room for improvement, right? So I think that that's, yeah, that's, that's where we are. Um, but that said, we have been coming a long way. You'll notice that, um, you know, it was just a small group, maybe a grad student and a faculty member at Johns Hopkins that came up with the, you know, their Center for Systems dashboard. They were the ones that is quoted everywhere in terms of all the tracking the data, just counting and saying who, which countries or which regions have accounts and things like that. I think since that time and since everyone can start seeing the problem, remember, if you can't, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So once you start seeing that, then you can start to say, okay, we have a big wave uh, coming up and we need to, let's say, dial back on implementing control issues and so on. Uh, Or uh, conversely, when we were down, remember that those few weeks uh, this past summer when we (laughs) were able to have our mask off for a little while until Delta hit us. But again, that rapidity in the change of things is is what we really are trying to see sooner, quicker, better, faster, with more accuracy. And I think our algorithms and our data collection has been shaped in a more favorable way is doing that. And so one of the things that we we were talking about and recommending is like, look, we just need to really focus intentionally on the quality of data, the nature and extent of the data, we do need to think algorithmically about our epidemiology. It's always been a, a science of large numbers and statistics, but now in our era, especially with you know uh, mobile handsets and all of these various tools and data and things out there, how do we think differently from a design principle about doing that? And so I think that was the, the key thing. Sadly, Michael, we started this job in 2018. We were already, I had seen the story on Ebola. I had seen the story on Zika, right? And I was saying, man, the red coats are coming, right? We just, I don't feel like, you know, I don't feel like we're ready on this. And sadly, you know, we were mid-course in this whole study that did come out, of course, in 2020 after the pandemic started. But nonetheless, 
it was something that we noticed and we were, we were shocked by how advanced we could be in certain things in our society with data and so and algorithms. And, and in this case, we just were nowhere near we needed to be. Yeah, that's a great point. I want to turn a little bit inside uh, to uh, GAO. And, and I'm really interested in the effort uh, of, of, uh, that you, I think, had uh, were leading really is the Innovation Lab. Um, I was hoping you'd tell us more about the GAO's Innovation Lab. Um, how is it being used to enhance your oversight capabilities? And to what extent are you in the lab subscribing to that iterative approach to innovating? And uh, why is this sort of a different mindset in the federal government? Sure. So um, great question. I'll, I'll talk about the the lab itself is there to explore advanced analytic capabilities and then also uh, develop uh, or leverage emerging technologies, which include things like uh, digital ledger technologies, or if you remember the blockchain, for example, as well as machine learning systems and so on. For the future of oversight, right, we're trying to help enable that future GAO to do its job better, quicker, faster, again, with, with, no, with no diminishment of quality, but even potentially an enhancement of quality, if, if possible, meaning just more incisive evidence-based policymaking. So that's the, the overall goal. The lab's job then is really to run in um, a, a DARPA-like framework. And DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, but they were the pioneers and innovators behind things like you know, stealth weaponry and the internet and night vision and goggles and uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, et cetera. So many things that DARPA did, right? But the way they did it is that they allowed, they hired smart people, they put them in kind of the sandbox and they, they had focused, developed efforts, but based upon a problem, it had to, it wasn't just, let's just do more of let's research and try and cure something. It was more of like, hey, what is the problem I'm trying to do? And then apply it that way. And so the lab has already started that in earnest. Um, one thing that um, uh, was, we were proud to do just in terms of, it, this wasn't like the most advanced research, but what I'm saying is the, the result was agile, of agile came out there was, Earlier this year, we issued a report on Operation Warp Speed. I mentioned how we, we moved you know, vaccine development from 10 years to 10 months. And um, the Congress had asked us specifically and said, look, there's so much money going into this program. We want UGAO to do real-time oversight was the key phrase. So what we said is, okay, we need to digitally dashboard this. We need to put it up. We need to have a 101 explain what... Um, what kind of vaccines are out there, including the mRNAs, the messenger RNA vaccines. We need to say, here are the manufacturers, here's the relative technology readiness of this, here's where they are in production, here are the issues with manufacturing, you know, just do all the sort of things. And that resulted in our Operation Warp Speed dashboard. Um, but what was powerful about it was, Michael, we did that, got that solution up and running, uh, not the content, but I mean, just running through the federal chief information officer um, uh, writing through the and obtaining the authority to operate. We did that from and moved that from normally a six to nine month process. We did it in six calendar days. So it was a rapid, you know, and right now it just went the whole thing of, well, how do we get software in there as we move to cloud? How do we do that? And, and what if we can imagine trying to do, we have a, a project where we're still, we're sketching on the board. We're trying to say, what if you could do ATO in a day? Right. So uh, and that's going to be augmented heavily by automation and some of these things we talked about earlier. 
But that's really the kind of thing we're trying to say. What if you could really knock it down from this and have a 10x, 100x improvement or a reduction in time or a reduction in resources and really have that agile design-centered uh, thinking? Uh, and I think the world can change. And, and we think it is changing and we're excited. And by the way, we're just getting started. So uh, we're looking forward. How is GAO working to digitally transform its operations? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Dr. Tim Persons, Chief Scientist and Managing Director of the Science Technology Assessment and Analytics Team at the Government Accountability Office, GAO. So, Tim, uh, would you tell us more about GAO's efforts to digitally transform its operations, specifically, you know, enhance its computing and processing power? And I'm really wondering, how do cloud-based analytics and AI factor into this strategy? Yes, thanks. Because we are looking and we are in the middle of what, what we call our cloud journey. We are transforming. We've been digital, but we've been digital in sort of the on-prem uh, world. What's exciting about cloud is as you move to cloud, it sort of opens up and says, look, there's, you really have the everything as a service buffet. And the, the, the mistake to make, this is the sort of the cultural transformation is to say, you know, the way I grew up in IT, like my generation of IT in the 80s and 90s and that kind of thing is not the day of today. We, we don't just want to replicate the 80s and 90s architectures, for example, and make the same assumptions about cybersecurity, for example, uh, as you go to cloud. So really, we're thinking about it's, it's basically let's break out the, the large whiteboards, maybe the whole wall and start sketching out and say, what does digital transformation look like? What are we trying to do? And focus specifically on task-based type things. Things that we can we can break down and execute on. Not everything is just thrown in the cloud and, and magic happens, right? This is all still done by design, which means you have to have design thinking. You have to have, again, that problem definition type way of doing things. But it's very exciting because as you move uh, computing into you know buying racks and stacks and you know unit numbers of uh, boxes or what have you, now you're you're buying sort of cloud computing by the pound, as it were. You have the software as a service capabilities, which just opens up a massive buffet where you don't have to predetermine so many things. You can, it's a commodity type structure. So that invokes new acquisition thinking. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to rewrite the FAR entirely. It just means you have to think about well, how do we do things at the FAR where you're changing computing from buying unit, unit number of boxes into you know, uh, a software as a service type. Uh, paradigm. So, so that's the kind of thing we're doing from, from first principles. And then on top of that is the analytics. What can we do with this? Again, not thinking about let's just do more of the same thing, but what problems are we trying to solve and what things can we, what data do we have? What things can we turn on and off? And then let's run some pilots and really in an agile way, iterate quickly to a, a solution. Or if it's not converging to a solution, then say, this doesn't work. It's a stopping thing. We're throwing it out and we're doing something else. So that's where I think the, the new way of business and digital services is really around that. And so cloud and AI, or AI is just a part of that. It's just AI is just more fancy analytics, machine learning, statistical-based things, which is all going to be based upon that. So you have to have people that think statistically, think algorithmically, uh, think about cloud architectures in the newer way. And so uh, that's that's what really invokes that big cultural challenges, uh, challenge I mentioned earlier. What are you seeing from a cloud computing trend 
that, that are helping federal agencies move more quickly to the modernization journey? Yeah, I think um, the, the thing that I'm seeing is, is a, a slow, uh, somewhat of a slow awakening into what cloud can do, right? You, you, I think agencies um, might have the misperception of going to cloud means uh, I'm, I, I, I absolve myself of cybersecurity. That's now someone else's problem. Well, that's not exactly true. You still, you know, there, there's the security of the cloud versus security in the cloud. And so the vendors are all going to tell you their job is security of the cloud and in, in the cloud. So I think one of the trends is just the, the waking up and realizing that there's some things are still the responsibility of the agency or the department. But... Uh, that said, that does require new thinking about, for example, cybersecurity in the cloud, what that looks like, right? The, the motherhood apple pie of, let, let's say, the NIST framework is still very relevant, but we need to think differently about how we implement that when we have this, this newer thing. But uh, I think the, the trends are that uh, waking up to that software as a service and, and, again, you can turn things on and off and you can scale, expand or uh, recess or what have you. I think all that awakening is just now occurring. As you know, we've been, we as the government have not been doing well in modernization. So it's just on the, the traditional sense of things. Cloud is not that new. Uh, the agencies have been moving over. They've been benefiting from that. But there are things not to do and lessons learned on that. But nonetheless, uh, I, see, I think the trend overall is, is stuck in some, you know, how do we think about things with a perfect solution looking forward? It can't be done. Uh, with, with the classic way we think about solving problems, it has to be done in agile, uh, scaled agile kind of framework and, and to think differently about modernization. I think it's just jumping right from the existing into the new, but we have to think about what, what the new we want to look like. That's the trend, yeah. Tim, you mentioned agile uh, a couple of times in our conversation, and, and you point out that uh, agile methods have the potential to save uh, government billions of dollars by delivering services more efficiently and effectively. How prevalent is the use and application of agile methods among federal agencies? And what are some of the key challenges to its adoption? Yeah, I think what one of the one of the key things that makes agile methods very beneficial is you have to be task specific and focused, right? You're also and like I mentioned about leadership is thinking strategically, but you're acting tactically. You, you have smaller things. You're just, you're not eating the elephant all at one time. You're taking bites at it and so on, but you're doing it as a, as a team and includes and encourages that interdisciplinary uh, like interactions as teams uh, that are required to frankly, to solve our problems of today. Uh, we're not going to get through with just any, any one type uh, of background or, or educational status or what have you, it really is going to be uh, a village that's going to help uh, get us there. So that's uh, one area. The other area is really that Agile allows you to uh, do course corrections on the way, which means that you can more easily identify like, oh, this is starting to get off track because you, you have a sense of what you're about and you're, in other words, you have a willingness to step out and move and have what I call useful failure. And so that useful failure um, is oftentimes dissuaded. I, I mean, I grew up in, in, a, in a U.S. Navy family. My father was an officer. And he, I remember him telling me, you know, son, you know, failure is not an option. And that sounds really cool, but that's not reality when it comes to IT and, and delivering services. We have to try 
and and pilot and and fail usefully as it were it, learn those lessons apply and then come to that solution that's what i think the power of agile is that's why i think it's so countercultural to what so many agencies how they think and what they do but if we do that then we can converge to solutions more efficiently and effectively and then that's where i think that the billions of dollars are going to be saved so tim i'd like to transition to the application and use of blockchain and distributed ledger technologies in government would you define for us these technologies and how they work and what are some of the opportunities and challenges in using these technologies to deliver on government missions sure so Digital ledger technologies, uh, just unpacking the word, the, the D is distributed. It just means there's there's copies of the L, meaning a ledger, in multiple places, right? So in, in two or more places. This goes uh, is, is contrasted to a traditional database approaches where you have everything in one place, right? In this place, what happens is, or in, in, in DLTs, you have a copy of the ledger in multiple places. Uh, and so that's powerful in, in a number of ways because uh, you know continuity of operations being one of them and security being another, meaning if you hack, uh, you know, if you have everything, all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, in just a centralized uh, database and it's hacked, then the, the bad guy got away with it, right? They, they got that. But if they hack or try and shut down um, one of the members of that uh, distribution network, as it were, then all the others still have a copy and that's, that's a, a benefit. Okay. So that's what really DLT is. Blockchain then is, is really, um, it's just separating the words. It's always mashed together as one word, but really is about having a chain like a data chain of things, uh, uh, blocks of data chained together, whereby what uh, has been going on is a transaction occurs in some window of time that is a set window of time. It could be 10 seconds, it could be 10 minutes, could be 10 hours, but whatever happens in that time epoch, then what happens is a block is created and said, these are the transactions that happened in this time. So what's cool about that is that you have a certain block of, of it's, it's recording transactions, but then in the case of things like cryptocurrencies and so on, um, which use blockchain as a, as a backbone technology, there's also a, a ledger that other people have a copy of so that you can transfer value, in this case, cryptocurrencies, coins without going through a central bank of a country or what have you, or being on the dollar or the the, the pound or the euro or what have you, um, but to be able to um, have a transaction uh, in a, a, a safe cryptographic way where you have a public and private key type system that that uh, transactions recorded, those are chained together and those copies of that ledger of all the transactions are distributed so that everyone sees that and, and the a lot of the securities and the fact that it's distributed. So very powerful in terms of what we see in cryptocurrencies. What I think is cooler about it is meaning beyond the cryptocurrencies though on, on the technologies really, what it could do for things like supply chain management. Um, think about uh, if we wanna know where our drugs are manufactured and if let's say a, a bad lot of the drug was made, would we, how would we notify people that purchase that? That could be managed on blockchain. Uh, same thing with food uh, supply chain. Um, we've seen that as well. 
uh, anything that transfers value or that convey information of the provenance of it, where it comes from, and and so on. It could be it could be done in this way. So it's an exciting technology. A lot of the big um, retailers are starting to use this in supply chain, as as I mentioned, we are in a supply chain crunch era. So there's, I think, a lot that blockchain could do. In the government space, there's also promise in terms of blockchain being used for uh, oversight of grants management, right? Uh, approximately half of our uh, principal investigators at, at our major universities doing research and so on, half of their time is oftentimes taken up in uh, grants management. So what if we could make grants management easier where they're still compliant with the law and compliant with the intent of the money and they make their university happy that they're researching in, but they get a lot more time to do the research. So uh, that adds a lot of value where, um, and, and that this has been piloted with the National Science Foundation, with the Department of Treasury. Some really uh, great things are coming out of that. And we ourselves in our innovation lab are prototyping blockchain and we're going to be uh, partnering just in the technology space just to run a pilot with uh, the, um, the fiscal service and uh, to connect with uh, office management budget just on budgetary things because we really want to look at what this what this technology might be able to do to minimize or reduce improper payments uh, as one problem. And so we think there's a lot of savings in this, uh, but again, there's, this isn't a silver bullet technology. There's gonna be a lot of challenges, but that's why we're prototyping it to, to learn what it might be good for and where it is, what its limitations are gonna be. That's great. So Tim, I think congratulations is in order. As you are now a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration, NAPA, I was wondering what does it mean uh, to you being included in the class of 2021 of NAPA Fellows? Oh, Michael, it's a huge honor. I, I never imagined I would be a fellow of anything, much less NAPA and in public administration. Remember, I'm a scientist that have come into that. Uh, I have a lot of you know, computer science and digital uh, background as well, but um, public administration wasn't a, a, a key thing that I was initially trained in, although I've been honored to work in it for all of my years at GAO and then my federal service in general. So it's a huge honor uh, for that. Uh, coming in with some incredible people, I always feel like I'm out of place with this class, uh, maybe the previous classes as well. Uh, but it's 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 a tremendous uh, honor because it's such an important entity. You know, they're working on. Uh, they've identified twelve grand challenges. I mentioned that sort of complex adaptive systems thinking one must have is because and and the things that I was mentioning just on the headlines today. Uh, those are what we're facing, and we have to think differently about the future of government. And uh, again, like agile government, that's that's not an oxymoron. It is possible. We're doing it. We have to think about how we scale it. We have to think about how we we um, we convey best practices and help help government in general. And that's at the federal, state, and local levels uh, to do that. And I think NAPA is an ideal uh, place to do that. And so I'm honored to be with several key colleagues. Um, at, at GAO, but also to meet new colleagues who are doing incredible things to really help uh, uh, bring uh, thinking uh, and design thinking, agile thinking to uh, the digital services government that is emerging today. Well, Tim, before we leave, I just want to get your advice. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? I would say uh, seriously consider this. It is a huge honor uh, to do public service. It is uh, so meaningful. Um, and it, it, it is what you make it. This is not 
Um, I would say today's public sector is is, is not uh, the same one you might have thought of when you grew up, and it's not the uh, you know Department of Motor Vehicles person that is might you might feel like is taking forever just to issue your license kind of thing. This is a is a tremendous time and place for public service with all the challenges that I mentioned today. If you, if you want to make a difference and you are not interested in making it about yourself, right? you're, you are willing and able to do that servant leadership I was talking about to be able to take those steps and, and go out and to take measured risk and do these sort of things. The, the public sector needs you is what I would say. And uh, it's a hugely rewarding a career path. There's so much to 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 address and to do, and uh, I would be. Uh, it is very exciting. Uh, contrary to what you may have heard or think, again, uh, it, it's something that is well worth your while, your time, and uh, it is a life well spent. Well, Tim, I, I want to thank you for your time today and sitting down with us and chatting about all the work, you're, great work you're doing at GAO. Uh, but more importantly, Tim, thank you for your continued dedicated service to the country. Thanks very much, Michael. It's great to see you again and uh, to uh, talk with you. And I look forward to reconnecting with you again soon. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dr. Tim Persons, Chief Scientist and Managing Director of the Science Technology Assessment and Analytics Team at the Government Accountability Office, GAO. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.